Thank you very much. Um, yes, I'm not even sure sometimes how to pronounce my own name, so no worry about that. Um, so the first thing I want to say is thank you. Uh, thank you for the support that my wife, Cecile, and I will receive from Emmaus. Uh, but I also want to say thank you for quite a few people who are helping us like on an individual or personal level. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for the talents. Thank you for your prayers, your friendship. Thank you for your financial support. Um, I just want to mention Kathleen because Kathleen has been uh, encouraging, praying for us and encouraging people to pray for GBUC for years or maybe even decades, right? So every time there is good thing happening somewhere on a campus in French-speaking world, there is somebody who has prayed and Kathleen is behind that. So thank you, Kathleen. Um, I'm going to say a few words about GBUC and then we'll move on to our character this morning. So GBUC stands for Groupe Biblique Universitaire et Collegio du Canada. So we prefer using the acronym, obviously. Um, and as has been mentioned, we're uh, IVCF Canada's sisters movement uh, on French-speaking campuses. So at UDM, at UCAM, Polytechnique ETS, but also in Rouen-Noranda, in Saguenay, in Trois-Rivières, in Quebec, and we're praying for Sherbrooke. Um, and our mission statement reads as follows. We want to see students on French-speaking campuses in Canada uh, discover Jesus Christ, develop a mature spirituality, and become spirit-filled witnesses. So our whole goal in life is to nurture this virtuous circle. And the engine behind that, if I can put it this way, is Bible study. Uh, where we discuss together with students a portion of the Bible. Um, so preparing a Bible study is not preparing answers, it's preparing questions. Um, questions of, of observation. What, what is happening in the text? What are the people saying? How do they react? Uh, question of interpretation. Why does it happen? Why do they, do they say that? Why do they react this way? And uh, question of application. What does it mean for us today? Um, it is music to our ears when we have students saying, I had never read that text this way. I had never realized how much there is in this text. Um, we're studying uh, the, the, the character of David this session, and one student said, week after week, whatever happens to him, there is something for me to learn in my life. Um, this is how our global family, which is called IFES, sorry, another acronym, uh, this is how they speak about Bible study or uh, scripture interaction, and I really like the way they phrase it. Central to our understanding of the Bible is the conviction that God's Word is not primarily a book, but a person. God revealed himself to us not by shouting from heaven, but by coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And scripture leads us to Jesus. This is why it is so incredibly valuable. We must not reduce the Bible to an object of study. It is more like a room 
which we enter to meet with Jesus. It is this encounter that transforms us into lovers and followers of Jesus who are able to serve him in the world. So this is what we want students on every campuses in Quebec to experiment week after week after week, session after session. So if you want to know more about GBUC, um, I have a few copies of our latest newsletter, which happened to be the Christmas newsletter, so it's really out of timing, but you will have interesting stories about what happens in the city of Quebec. And I also have a handful of copies. I have written a book on humility of all things. It's called Pursuing Humility, Question Mark, Meditations of a Proud Heart. So if you're curious, I have a few copies in French and English available uh, on the table outside. And with that, I'm going to stop being a temple's merchant. And <laughs> let's, uh, let's start with our story this morning. Um, it's going to be a little bit different, maybe. Uh, I would like to enter the shoes or maybe the boots or the sandals of the character of the Roman centurion. So basically, I will tell the story as if I was the guy. Uh, it is obviously based on the biblical text that we just read, um, but it's also based on my imagination, right? So I'm not pretending this is how things happened. I just suggest it could have been something like that. But also, it's a preaching. So I would like to encourage you not just to listen to a nice little bedtime or morning nap story by Joel. Uh, let's have this mindset, this perspective. What is God telling me through this story? So I call it the wall of enmity. What does it take for a Roman? for a soldier, for an officer, to call the Jews my brothers. I am a foreigner. By now you will have noticed it because of the features of my face, because of the clothes that I wear, because of the accent I have when I speak your language. Worse than that, I'm a Roman, I'm a legionary, I'm a centurion. I am attached to the 10th legion. Yes, that very legion that under the orders of General Pompey besieged, conquered, and ravaged Jerusalem, putting an end to the Hasmonean dynasty and an end to your independence. I am all too aware of the offense that Pompey caused to your people when he, a pagan, a foreigner, he entered the most holy place, thus desecrating the temple of the Lord. In a word, I represent everything that you hate, and you never miss a chance to remind me of it. But today, because of the word that the hope of this young rabbi ignited in me when he said, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. 
because of this hope, I'm going to tell you my story. I come from northern Etruria, from the region of Fiesola. It is true that we have the privilege of being at the center of what today has become the all-powerful Roman Empire, but that doesn't mean much for individual destiny. The members of my family are miserable peasants who struggle to feed themselves and get through winter. The fifth, fifth child, third brother, I had no prospect for the future. The family plot of land is already too small for my two older brothers to feed their families properly, so there was no point in me following my father's path. On the other hand, my status of citizen opened the door to the legion for me, fed and equipped for free, but risking my life every day in the service of the empire. If you survive the 25 years of service, you get a nice pension, a property offered by the emperor, and the right to officially get married. If you die in battle, at least you die with honors. But if your troops is defeated, or if you flee from the enemy, you die in shame, or you are decimated if fate falls on you. These inhuman practices are aimed at instilling discipline and lead the legionaries to be more afraid of the punishment that awaits them on the friend's side than the threat posed by the enemy. The discipline of its soldiers, even in the faith of death, that's what makes the strength of the legions of the army of Rome. And it is us, the centurions, who are responsible for it. I promise you that it is not pleasant but it is the price to pay for what our senators proudly call the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, from the comfort of their luxurious palaces in Rome. My first assignment was in Britannia, five years. I don't even want to talk about it. Five long years of cold, endless violence, unnecessary deaths, Hatred that only fed an endless circle of retaliation. All in the name of the emperor and for the greatness of Rome. The promised reinforcement never arrived. The invasion which was supposed to bring a definitive victory was always postponed. And in the meantime, the generals and barbarians died in a guerrilla war that made no sense. After five years, I escaped from this hell. Those who survive five years in Britannia are by definition considered for promotion, and my good record of service meant that I found myself a centurion. From Britannia, I, I brought Gracious, my aide-de-camp, a peasant's son like me, a good guy, and I offered him to enter my service to shorten his stay in Britannia, so he accepted immediately and with gratitude. Officially, he's my servant, but in reality, he's a friend, and even a brother. We talk a lot about Rome and the army. We discuss things together that it would be better not to mention higher up in the hierarchy. Anyway, I found myself a centurion, flanked by Gracious, 
stationed in Capernaum with my troops. Oh, the contrast between Palestine and Britain is complete. It is no surprise that the scripture speaks of this place as a land flowing with milk and honey. The sun shines most of the year and it warms our bodies and our hearts. The rain falls only as much as necessary to fertilize the soil. The hills around Capernaum are lush with vineyards, silver olive trees, pastures for, for livestock. In the center, the deep blue lake of Galilee sparkles like a jewel. Boats navigate the lake, their sails flapping in the wind, their whiteness responding to the whiteness of the houses scattered around the shores. All this gives a peaceful atmosphere. It is like a foretaste of the shalom, that universal harmony that, you, that we aspire for. Believe me, after the hell of Britannia, being assigned in Palestine is a real treat. Oh, I am well aware that under this peaceful appearance, the lake can undergo storms as sudden as they are violent. And I am well aware that under your peaceful appearance, there is also a thirst for freedom, a burning desire to get rid of the yoke that we Romans impose on Israel. I am well aware of all that. And you never miss a chance to remind me of it. But what struck Gracious and me most when we arrived in Palestine was your religion. We talked about it night after night by the flickering light of an oil lamp. We sought to understand. We were constantly puzzled, surprised, amazed at what we discovered. You understand, our Roman gods, they are a clan that live on Olympus Mount. Even, they are, if, even if they are married to each other and they are officially part of a big family, they betray each other, they take revenge on each other, they sleep around, they are jealous, irascible, angry. They are at the same time very far from us, human. They live on their sacred mountain and they feed on nectar, but they are also very close to us by their very imperfect character. It seems that their only interest for human beings is to sleep with beautiful mortals, leaving behind them a bunch of demi-gods. Each god has his own special specialty. Each region, each city, and each family chooses its main god. In the army, obviously, we are worshippers of Mars, the god of war. This was one of the things we discussed with Gracious. Why celebrate war, violence, death? In the name of Mars, the empire has to conquer new territories and push back its boundaries again and again. The blood that flows freely in Britannia, innocent lives slaughtered for little or no reason, all this in the name of the god Mars doesn't make any sense. Of course, there are other gods. Bacchus is one that the soldiers like, the god of wine and party. It's look, it looks good on the surface, but the party often has a bitter aftertaste the next morning. It seems to me that Bacchus is the way to forget Mars. We try to drown the horrors of war in the wine of party. 
And what about Eros, the god of love, or Vesta, the goddess of the home and family, to legionnaires who are not allowed to marry until their 25 years of services are over? There remains, of course, one god, another god, the last god, the one who unites or tries to maintain the unity of the whole Roman Empire. And here, I'm going to ask you to be very discreet, because I am risking a lot if you repeat what I am going to tell you to my superiors. It actually took Gracious and me years to dare to talk about the subject. I remember it like it was yesterday, even though it must have been almost five years now, when the Zealots' revolt was in full swing. We had spent a day patrolling the area and, and we were ambushed. They were waiting for us on the road to Sepphoris. One of them threw some rocks behind us, so we stopped to see what was going on, and in the meantime, they deployed in front and back. So we were ensnared without a way to escape. A trick as old as the world, and against which there is not much to do but to sell your skin dearly. Except that well-trained legionnaires facing a handful of peasants armed with clubs, even thirsty for freedom. Your poor Jewish compatriots were no match for us. Several died, and the three we captured were condemned to crucifixion. Crispus, one of us, died too. And I myself left with a broken arm. I probably would have been the second Roman casualty of the day if Gracious hadn't protected me. Always violence, suffering, death. Always this vicious circle of revenge, blood calling for blood. That night, as the pain gradually subsided, when everyone was in bed and, as and sleeping, Gracious and I, we talked about the subject for the first time. As if the last incident was the straw that broke the camel's back. As if we had now become brothers and that the ties of blood were stronger than those of hierarchy. In short, we talked about the imperial cult. Augustus, the Roman emperor, proclaimed God by the Senate after his death. Augustus, the one to whom the entire empire owes allegiance. A new God to strengthen the unity of the empire. A God common to all Romans beyond races and territories. But which God? A God in whose name the massacres of Britannia began? A God in whose name innocent blood is shed in the four corners of the empire? A God to whom countless people should submit blindly under penalty of death? A man who becomes God after his death? Kratos and I have been talking all night. We are definitely not satisfied with the Roman Empire with its army and with its religion. At the same time, you know, we were discovering the God of Israel, your God. And the contrast with the Roman religion is complete. I don't know if you Jews realize how special your God is, how different from all the others, how unique. 
First of all, your scriptures begin with the origin of the universe. Compare that to the story of Remus and Romulus, which limits our horizon to the creation of Rome and the origin of the empire. Then, and above all, where our gods are close to mind by their evil inclination and far from us by their indifference, your God is exactly the opposite. He is infinitely far from us because of his perfection, his justice, his goodness, his love, his power, what you call his holiness. But at the same time, this God is infinitely close to man. Where our gods are only interested in sleeping with mortals, the God of Israel makes a covenant with a man. He chooses Abraham and commits himself to him. From Abraham will come the people of Israel, who will inhabit the land of Canaan. Abraham will even become a blessing for all nations. Centuries later, faithful to his promise, God frees his people from Egypt, from the oppression of Pharaoh, he gives them his own law and teaches them how to live in harmony with their God, with each other, and with their land, the promised land into which God has led his people. God will take care of Israel through ups and downs, even preparing a king for them, David, a man after God's own heart. What a contrast to our emperors. For centuries, this God will speak to his people again and again, begging them through the mouth of the prophets to return to him, not to abandon the relationship to which he invites them. And even in the face of Israel's disobedience and idolatry, in the face of exile, God does not abandon his people. The Lord brings a remnant back to Palestine, letting them rebuild the temple that temple that we, Romans, have desecrated. I know you know this whole story better than I do, but I want you to realize how extraordinary it is, how, it, how compelling it is to me, a Roman centurion who has been trained all my life to hate the enemies of Rome and to despise their beliefs. I understand Ruth telling Naomi, your God will be my God. Even though it, it seemed like Naomi's situation was desperate and Ruth's prospect as a foreign woman in Bethlehem were nil. And yet, this same Ruth became the great-grandmother of King David. Do you realize how unique, how extraordinary these stories are? Gracious and I, we're fascinated by everything we discovered about the Jewish religion. We were like cloth, thrown into the water and absorbing everything we could, like bees irresistibly drawn to a pot of honey. In fact, we were so eager to learn more about uh, that we pulled all of our money and we organized a collection to build a synagogue. We thought that the best way to be taught was to be the patrons, to be the benefactors of your community. This would allow us somehow to have access to the rabbi, to his teaching, to learn to read the Torah in your language, to understand it better, and above all, to discover more and more about the God of Israel. 
But at the same time, we always come up against this wall of enmity. We are Romans, the enemies, the occupiers, the desecrators of the temple. A pious Jew will not speak to us, will not share a meal with us, will not even enter my house. Because of my origin, because of my citizenship, because of my profession, I am impure. I am excluded from the relationship with the God of Israel, from belonging to his people. I am a foreigner to the promises of God. And you never miss a chance to remind me of it. And then, a few weeks ago, Gratius got ill, really ill. A fever that took him all at once. He couldn't get up. He was shivering despite the summer heat and the blankets that we had piled over him. The garrison's doctor, when he examined him, had the face of the guy who doesn't know how to say that he has no clue what's going on and no idea how to improve the situation. I sent for the best doctor in Galilee from Sepphoris to see if he could do something for Gratius. He, at least, had the honesty to tell me that medicine is powerless in this kind of case and that the best I could do was to leave it to the hands of God or to my gods, he added, suddenly remembering that he was in a Roman's place. Well, if Gratius should die, he's my servant but he represents so much more to me. He's a friend. He's my only true friend. A brother is in arms, closer to me than my own brothers. Many times when I saved the life of the other. We spent years together in Britannia and came out of it together. Above all, we questioned together Rome, its empire, its army, its religion. We discovered together, here in Capernaum, all the richness of the Jewish religion and the splendor of the God of Israel. To lose gracious is to see a part of myself torn away. It was the doctor who told me about Jesus. He had never met him, but he, ha he had heard about him. Above all, he had heard that Jesus performed miracles, especially healings that no one else had ever known and that the doctors did not know how to explain. Some people whisper that Jesus could be the Messiah sent by God to free the Jewish people. If it's the case, we Romans will soon have to deal with him. But in the meantime, this Jesus is probably the best hope, if anything can be done for gracious. Of course, being Roman complicates that kind of situation. A rabbi is never going to enter my house, and Gratius, in, in, in his condition, cannot be moved. So I went to the rabbi of my synagogue, and because I financed the construction, he has no real choice but to do me a favor when I ask him. So he agreed to send a delegation of elders to Jesus and ask him to help Gratius. On my side, I added Quintus to the delegation, one of my best soldiers, and a guy who can run long and fast. And I asked him to accompany the elders and come back with news as soon as he could. Gratius is dying, and Jesus is his last hope. Quintus returned a little bit later with good news. Jesus was on his way to heal Gratius. 
And then, all of a sudden, this reality hit me. If Jesus is really the one the doctor described to me, the one who performs miracles and prodigious healings, if he is the one sent by God, the God of Israel, the God who created the universe and everything in it, the God who cares about mankind, and especially about the Jewish people, the God who made a covenant with Abraham, who placed David on the throne, then, then Jesus has only one word to say and gracious will be healed. If the Roman emperor can send thousands of men to their death with, with one of his words, Jesus can certainly bring one man back to life with one of his own words. And then, discipline, giving orders and being obeyed. This is the daily bread for us, centurions. So I send another delegation to meet Jesus with this message. Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do it, and he does it. Now, two things happen. The instant these words were spoken to Jesus. First, Gracious was healed, totally, instantly, and remotely. An extraordinary miracle, especially if you remember the doctor's word. Gratius was shivering and conscious under his pile of blankets, threw them off at once. He got up, feeling great, and started eating and drinking to regain his strength. And I promise you that when Gratius starts eating seriously, kitchen staff better has their logistics ready. The other thing, equally extraordinary, and which I learned from Quintus a little bit later, are the words of Jesus, which I mentioned before. Jesus said, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. I don't know if you will accept this, but here is how I understand this saying. Basically, Jesus compared a Roman to an Israelite, and the comparison is favorable to the Roman. If I understand that correctly, Jesus has just said that the wall of enmity against which Gracious and I have been bumping our heads again and again for so many years, this wall has just disappeared all of a sudden. The pagans, what is more, the Romans, me, a legendary, a centurion on top of that, we also have access to the God of Israel. So it is true that in Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Ruth, then, becomes the representative of so many foreigners who will be welcomed by the God of Israel. And that's not all. The one who says this is Jesus, he whose word is followed by effect. 
he cured creatures instantly and at a distance of a disease that left the best doctor of the province powerless. If the word of Jesus is powerful enough to heal creatures, it must be powerful enough to tear down that wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles. Yesterday, we were enemies. Today, because of Jesus, we have become friends and even brothers. And I will never miss a chance to remind you of it.